George McClellan, heroic victim of historian's bias or a slow-footed loser? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Hear that? You just got to love that sound. Really, it's one of this country's great treasures. The unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except, of course, for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or states sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads, from computers to produce. We even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than $31 billion a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Dmitry Rogov, the creator of the Civil War Bookshelf blog, an online location where you can get interesting commentary on what's happening in Civil War publishing. Dimitri, we're glad you're with us today. Let me remind the listeners the place to find your blog is at cwbn.blogspot.com. And you don't even have to buy a book this week to find out what our guest is about. Go type that in, look at it, and and find out your views. Um, In our first session, we were talking about your blog. We started getting into Civil War publishing. I promise we'll get to George McClellan's soon. But I wanted to ask a couple more blog-related questions. Sure. This, this Internet journal that uh, every, uh, as you pointed out, the fear is that every 14-year-old would-be rock guitarist has one. Uh, but some of them are very good. Yours is different in some ways. One is that you don't have people commenting on your comments, which I think is, is actually quite a strength. I appreciate that. There's um, 
a, a Los Angeles mystery writer who uh, has a blog. His name is Roger L. Simon, and and um, he, has, he has a few in, interesting industry observations and so on. But he was opposed to comments um, for the same reasons I am. So I'll just steal what he, what he said about them, and that is, it changes the character of the um, of the document of the of the journal, and it's beyond. Um, the blogger's ability to control the quality once the contents go on. And um, in my case, <clears throat> I should add cowardice to that list because um, I am, uh, uh, from the from the logs of visitors, I can see that uh, more than half of them have stumbled into the site by as a result of a search or something. So they're going to be naive um, readers. They're going to be the kind of reader that... Um, that Ken Burns is is trying to enlist in his uh, in his productions and and I, I don't want comments from those. I remember when I started the McClellan Society and um, the McClellan website had been up for a couple years. I got this letter from a guy who said, um, and it was a sweet letter and a good-hearted, good-natured, no irony or anything. And he said, you know, I really. I really like your website, but you know, there's another view of McClellan, and you should check this out. There's this guy Bruce Catton and a guy named Stephen. So he, d he didn't even have the idea that <laughs> the, 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 uh, this activity was a reaction to those views. And I'm afraid that to turn on the comments on the site would open that up. The other thing is, um, I have some very uh, definite technology biases, and I think that commenting is uh, old technology and it represents a failed form of uh, communication that is um, visible any day in the meltdown of, uh, of uh, conversation in the Usenet groups. If you go there, you basically see a downward spiral of um, vituperation and hurt feelings and retaliation and sniping. And to turn on the comments blog basically would invite people to comment on comments and comment on me, and then I, somebody's going to respond on my behalf, and it becomes it becomes um, a flame war uh, and a big hairy mess, I guess, yeah. basically. So, um, well, I, I I do agree with everything you say. I have uh, friends, uh, some journalist friends of mine, who have blogs which I read periodically. They're interesting. But I find I'm not disciplined enough to avoid reading the comments. I'm curious what you oh. think. And after I've wasted 15 minutes of my day reading the comments of people who, two-thirds of whom have really nothing to add, uh, or I already know what they're going to add, uh, I've just wasted that time forever. I can't get it back. And I would, as the author, probably not have the discipline to avoid reading it, and it would wind up taking you would twice as much time. time. And yeah. you might even feel compelled to answer. It would be another comment about the, the nature of communication on the Internet leading to uh, vituperation, to recrimination. Uh, partly a lot of people are not skilled, it seems to me, at, at written communication so that misunderstandings arise. But there's also the issue, and, and you just alluded to this, the way we communicate in society today, uh, anger is a big part of it. There is, you, you wrote humorously on your, your blog that this being talk radio that you would appear on, uh, the appropriate thing to do is berate the uh, the guest and, and the host. Someone should call in. And I've thought of changing this this show actually, where I would act that way. And, uh, just, just be... I could take it. It would it would actually be some um, uh, funny radio, and, and, and maybe it, that it would... might be. Some people just don't get it. Oh. They think the war was about the tariff. What's oh I could my gosh! I'm, 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 I'm picturing an April Fool's uh, edition of the show where we 
just uh, just do a Joe Pine style old, uh, old yell old. fest. <laughs> I would need, however, a lot of psychophantic callers. To oh call yeah, yeah. My opinions. To yeah, and then and then radio. and then the vaguely distracted, uncollected uh, ruminator who calls up to make a point that takes 15 minutes. Uh, exactly. Not that we guests can't do that too. Right. Um, now, within this, I will say, in your uh, own blog, uh, you at one point sort of apologize, uh, you say, I regret any unnecessary harshness. Uh, some of your opinions are, are a little hard-edged. I thought you Very were, harsh, uh, yeah. Let me give an example. You were, you were critical of the sentencing of some vandals at the Chickamauga National Military Park who were convicted of, of trying to dig up relics of, of boats mm-hmm. on the battlefield. And they were convicted, and you were critical not so much of the vandals as of the fact that they were sentenced. I thought this. I think the sentence was 20 years, and the, you know, it. Uh, no, somebody wrote, somebody wrote me and, and took me down a notch, and, and um, I really have the most amazing readers, and and this they seek me out. I don't make it easy for them to contact me. That's this correct. one, this one sought me out, and he said, "Look, um, I'm a lawyer, and you can never tell what the real story is from the account in the newspaper, and that's what you're doing here, and that's an absolutely valid criticism. But mm-hmm. from from the from the account, it looked like." We had a meth addict who was running a meth lab, and he and his nephew were out <clears throat> collecting um, bullets, it seemed like, and reselling them, digging up uh, digging up the field in Chickamauga. And I'm, I don't like relic collecting generally, but it just seems so harmless, you know, especially in context of, let's say, uh, bulldozers hitting the Shepherdstown battlefield here. And um, and the states, uh, I don't want to say the state officially, but certain preservationists and the heritage tourist officials taking the position that people can visit historic Shepherdstown instead. So <laughs> we don't really need that battlefield because the shops are in town. So um, to, to, to look at the sort of um, you know state-sanctioned developer vandalism that's happening a few miles away from where I live. And to some poor dope who's digging a, a, a tulip-sized bulb hole in the ground to look for a, uh, a bullet that he can sell, um, it, and then to give him 20 years. No, I think it was 20 months. Uh, I'm sorry, 20 months. 20 uh, years, I guess I'd be a little more <laughs> get my back up. Tw- tw- yeah, 20 months. It just it just seemed um, it seemed too much. It seemed like that was the kind of thing where you you pay a fine, you do restitution, you do community service. So. Um, and, and one guesses that that's, that's how that might well end up. Or being a meth addict, maybe 20, 20 months won't do him any harm. It, it could be that this is part of a broader um, feeling against this person, that he's got a record and they want to do something well. about him. And, and the lawyer you spoke to, and I, I plead guilty to being a, an ex-lawyer, a recovering lawyer myself, <laughs> um, was right that, that the media never gives the whole story of a, a legal case. Uh, there's too much in it. It's not interesting to the readers, and we don't hear it. Which brings us back really to what you were talking about with how Civil War publishing uh, doesn't always give uh, the, the deeper story that, that some readers are interested in. But before we get back to that, I, I, I teased our audience about McCollin, so I have to ask you, what is the McCollin Society? Well, I, uh, I was, uh, I'm a, um, I, I, I don't know how to explain this. Uh, I think it was uh, Eddie, uh, Ernie Kovacs who, who wrote in a, he wrote in an introduction to some book or other, um, started in an excess of op- optimism. And, and, um, 
I had gotten to kind of a boiling point with my Civil War reading. What, what happened was in, in 96, I began a, a four-hour daily commute to Wall Street, and I was on the train, and I would pick up these, uh, I don't know, you get on these reading jags, and I was not interested in the Civil War, and I started picking up the kinds of Civil War books you would find in a train station bookstore, you know, just the most biggest selling titles that they care to stock. And I'm going through these, and I'm reacting to the way, uh, first of all, I'm sympathetic with the depiction of McClellan in these books, but it, the overkill is, becomes offensive at a certain point. And after a while, I start rationalizing certain, let's say, shortcomings. And then as I read deeper into the primary sources, I see that the shortcomings are actually not um, slam dunks, that there are controversies associated with this career every step of the way. And then I go to the next level and I see uh, or evaluate how people are managing the um, controversial evidence that doesn't support their view. And from that, it just basically becomes... Um, it becomes, uh, you know, you're younger, you have more energy, you do stuff. And now that I'm, uh, now that I'm older, I don't know if I would start a McClellan Society, uh, given all the activities I'm involved in and so forth. But I think that um, if you if you characterize this uh, strange uh, group of people, I would say that um, most of them probably feel at home in the general interpretation of the Civil War. And most of them feel that a few writers have gotten the McClellan part of the story wrong and that McClellan was actually a, a patriot and a hero and, and a person who meant well and had many good qualities and who was uh, treated unfairly. And um, well, can, can you be, Let's be specific. Who, who, which writers do you think are unduly harsh to McClellan? Well, everyone who came out of that uh, centennial matrix of American heritage editorial contribution or board or member or writer, and that would start with, uh, could go back to the 40s and start with uh, um, Kenneth P. Williams, T. Harry Williams, uh, the later T. Harry Williams, not the earlier. Um, and uh, Bruce Catton, uh, Stephen Sears, and then the people who aggregate those views in their own books, such as the, uh, uh, James McPherson. So those people basically have um, they have a, a light board or an electrical board with a thousand switches that have to be set, and they set them in order to tell a story. And the the thing that we look for as let's say, advanced readers or sophisticated readers, is the kindness and consideration they show us as readers in passing over certain controversies or in, um, in handling certain matters of evidence. And basically, I think the McClellan Society members, I think all 65 of us, I think that's what our count is today, basically have run into this personal um, dissatisfaction with... Uh, the fairness issue. Now, I'm not in that space now. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm beyond that. It's, it's beyond fairness. It's sort of a, I've moved into a meta critique of the whole uh, body of consensus Civil War history. But that's where people more or less start. And, and the really odd thing is, is that if you take the McClellan legend or the McClellan um, chain of events as presented, in consensus history today, McClellan's um, 
McClellan is us. We are McClellan. Our life histories, our personal experiences, everyone we know is related to McClellan's experience of the war, not to the myth of Grant's experience of the war. Grant is this great favorite, you know, but he's this, I mean, what is the Grant legend? It's that uh, the wise, patient, all-seeing leader is waiting for the for the uh, right uh, subordinate to emerge from uh, trial and fire and is waits wait several years. And then here comes that uh, person and he's given um, absolute discretion and full of resources and total confidence and everything ends happily. But But that's not our lives. Our lives are filled with scheming subordinates, duplicitous colleagues, uh, a absent-minded, uh, distracted boss who puts people over us to manage us who are not who are not qualified or competent. We're people who are uh, fighting for resources. We're fighting for recognition. We're we're worried about getting fair treatment and honest treatment, and all that resonates with the McClellan legend as it is. And the odd thing is that people turn their back on that, and they opt for this kind of fantasy scenario with characters that exist nowhere in our personal experience. So, well, is, is that so odd, though? That, that uh, I, I think it's a very persuasive case that, that the average reader can relate more to someone in McClellan's position uh, and, than Grant's. But you might also, let me say you could construct a, a contrary scenario that we relate, uh, that, uh, taking for granted that we relate to Grant more than than um, Colin, uh, Grant is also the history of, uh, of failure, of struggle, of, of lack of success. Uh, Colin is the golden boy. Everything goes right for him. Well, and, turns to gold yeah, I, to a certain I, point. and those are aspects also. And so uh, the trick in telling the McClellan story is to keep him up there as the golden boy, as the spoiled brat, as the as the uh, impertinent uh, nuisance and annoyance and and the the, tr- the trick on the grant side is to convert this uh, marginal personality with a history of failure and difficulty and hard family relations into a tremendous success. And yes, that would be appealing in the sense that people come from broken homes, people have uh, unhappy family lives as, as children, they um, opt not to follow their father's advice, they go off, they do things, they get drunk, uh, they make a mess of their uh, their prospects or whatever. And and at the end of the day, you know, they want – that's what makes them uh, Americans culturally is at the end of the day they want to believe that that uh, the meritocracy will kick in. But there is nothing in our lives to suggest <laughs> that the, that there's a meritocracy that's going to kick in. And and I think what, um, what makes the – well, this is where the McClellan uh, reversal is going to break through. I mean we have several attempted reversals that are not going to work. Uh, it is going to work on a personal level when people get to know McClellan more, and they're going to get to know more through um, accessing the original materials, which are uh, online or here, there, and and everywhere. Now, <clears throat> for example, you've got McClellan's papers are, are generally, or his you know, letters through through Sears's publication are widely available. You you've got uh, correspondence going one way there, and it's very uh, pertinent that he used the title "selected correspondence" in that. Um, uh, I'm picturing uh, the human interest anecdotes that I know about McClellan and his wife and his family and the general circumstances that, uh, aside from the human interest and his interactions, which, of which there are many fine stories, I think those tend to get excluded by pop history because 
there is a McClellan character like Snidely Whiplash who has to be developed to a certain point, and the audience has to react to him a certain way. But um, that's what's going to break through pop history is someone who aggregates what I've aggregated for my own personal interest, which are these many human interest stories and interactions. And even if you were committed to a narrative form, you would have um, virtually uh, Tolstoyan themes here because uh, he marries into a family that was extremely prominent and in rapid decline. So you have the failing fortunes of the, the Marcy's of the Albany Regency in New York, and you have the struggle for a family of genteel poverty uh, out of Philadelphia trying to rise in the world and make something of themselves, <clears throat> basically set in the crucible of war. You have all these McClellan relatives enmeshed in the war, and their fate is not that of Union or Confederate, but as relative of George B. McClellan. So the, 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 the scene is set for a, a massive Victorian extravagant drama uh, that uh, a McCulloch or a, an Ambrose could have uh, probably undertaken with some profit, and somebody will figure that out and put it together. Um, it's, there's a lot there, basically. Well, I, there is a lot. I, I want to return to this uh, theme of McCollum, and we'll do that in just a moment. We're going to take another short break and come back with our guest today, Dmitry Rogov, chairman, founder of the McCollum Society, and also the creator of the Civil War Bookshelf blog. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 